five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK, sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Monday the 20th till Sunday the 26th of September is Organ Donation Week. And joining me to talk about what happens on the day of a kidney transplant and beyond is consultant transplant surgeon, Dr. Hannah Maple. Dr. Hannah is based in London, England, and her interests are in living donation and optimizing patients prior to transplantation. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Hannah? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm really excited about our interview today. This interview is kind of a follow-on from an interview that I did a couple of episodes ago. This is episode 39, which was an interview with Trevine, where we talked about the kidney transplant recipient workup process. And now in this interview today, I am interviewing consultant transplant surgeon, Dr. Hannah Maple, and we're going to look at the transplant process from a surgeon's point of view. And we're going to look at what does happen, what to expect. We're really going to delve into this process a bit more. So I'm going to start with my opening question. And this is, why does the surgeon want to know all of this information about kidney transplant patients? Yeah, so um, for those of you who've listened to Trevine's uh, podcast, which I can highly recommend, by the way, because it outlines what happens to get you on the transplant waiting list. And um, one of the main questions that you might have at the end of all of this is, why does the surgeon want to know all of this about me? Well, I mean, the main thing is What's going through our heads when we're thinking about transplanting you is two, maybe three main headlines. The first one is, can I put this person through an anaesthetic safely? And that's related to a lot of the heart tests that perhaps were mentioned in the last episode. Um, Why would you want to put the heart under stress? Well, actually having an operation is a bit like running a marathon. So we need to be sure that your heart is strong and healthy and can respond to a stressful experience, which having an operation and having an anaesthetic is. The second big thing is, well, actually, it's all well and good wanting to transplant this person, but where am I going to put the kidney? Um, And that's sometimes very challenging, uh, especially if somebody's had lots of operations before, if they've had previous transplants before. So that's why we might be interested in looking at what your blood vessels look like, because we need to know that there's a safe place for us to not only join the kidney, But also we need to put some clamps onto the blood vessels to stop the blood flow temporarily whilst we're doing the transplant. Um, And we need a certain distance, like a segment of your vein in your artery. And we need to know that that those vessels are healthy and that we're not going to make things worse by trying to put a kidney in that place. 
And then the third thing, mainly related to some of the things like the cancer screening and the viruses that Trevine was talking about, these are related to mainly the drugs that we give you after we've transplanted you. So we talked, I think Trevine mentioned immunosuppressant drugs. So these are drugs that do exactly what they say on the tin when they suppress your immune system. And we know that some of these drugs are associated with certain forms of cancer because we know that the immune system has a role somewhere in cancer. But also we're deliberately suppressing your immune system. So we're weakening your immune system so that the new organ becomes part of you. And because of that, you are at slightly higher risk of getting certain types of infection, pretty much all types of infection. But there are some viruses that we want to know about because we know that immunosuppressant medications have can potentially cause problems with particular viruses. So that's why we're thinking about all of these things. We may not be the best in communicating all of this at the time, but there is definitely method to the madness behind why we put you through this process before you even get offered anything from the deceased owner waiting list. So there's a lot there to unpack, a lot there to think about. So let's go from step one then. So someone has got the call and they're saying, come in, we've got an organ for you. What happens next? Well, I think the first thing to say is that before you even get that phone call, there's a lot of work and often a sleepless night for someone like me and (laughs) in parallel with someone like Trevine. So when Trevine and I are on call together, if there's lots of organ offers happening, not just for one person, but for lots of people. We are on the phone a lot. So we sometimes spend the whole night talking on the phone. So if we go right back to the beginning, one of the things about transplantation is that you can't transplant an organ into a recipient without a donor. So let's start at the donor end. So what typically happens is that someone somewhere is typically in intensive care in a hospital somewhere in the UK. And unfortunately, that individual has an unsurvivable illness that's going to end their life. There are different types of organ donor from, from the deceased on the deceased side. We can talk about that a little bit later if you want to. But essentially, an individual is identified as somebody who could potentially donate their organs. The next step of the process is for their family to consent for the organs to be retrieved. And assuming that the family does consent, that donor then goes through an assessment process to make sure that there's nothing about that person that means that I, as the transplant surgeon, wouldn't want to transplant their organs. So assuming that they are suitable to be a donor, they have their tissue typing done, their blood group and all these other tests that are performed on the donor. And then NHS Blood and Transplant, who are the main organisation that oversee the whole process, they have a central operations hub, which is based in Bristol. And they have a huge team who then start the organ offering process. So that's at the point where myself and Trevine will get a phone call to say that this particular donor has been through the algorithm and the computer system that runs the whole process. And this particular recipient has been identified as a potential recipient for this person's kidney. What Trevine and I then do is we go through the form that gets sent to us with all of the information about this person. And the things that I'm kind of interested in are 
how old are they? How did they die? What's their kidney function like? What's their past medical history like? Because what I want to do is try and do as best a job as I can to build up a 3D image of this individual and work out whether or not these organs are suitable for my recipient. So the way that I divide this up in my head is I put the donors into three groups. The first group is I would accept this kidney for anybody. It's so good that I could give it to anyone. That's a very small proportion of people. At the other end of the other extreme is this is an organ that I wouldn't give to anybody. And that's because it's either of poor quality, there's something about the donor that makes it too risky. For example, if they have a certain type of cancer, if they have evidence of particular illness or infection that I would be worried that I would transmit that into the recipient, I would say, actually, I'm going to say no to all recipients. I'm going to say no. By far, the majority are somewhere in the middle where I have to think, is this organ the right organ for this particular person that's been matched to? So a classic example is I've been offered a 60-year-old kidney for an 18-year-old. So yes, it might be a very good 60-year-old kidney, but it's going into a younger person and it has to see that person for as long as possible. So that's just one very crude example of why I may say no for that person. But actually, I might say yes for somebody else, or if that organ was re-offered to me for somebody else, I may then accept it. So that's kind of the thought process behind whether or not I say yes or no to this organ. So assuming that I say yes, the next step is that myself or Travine will speak to the other members of our team. If your own nephrologist is not available, your own kidney doctor is not available, so it's three o'clock in the morning, we may speak to the on-call kidney doctor at the time and say, do you think this is a reasonable offer? If they agree, we then pick up the phone and we call you and we say, we potentially could have a kidney for you. And then we will give you a set of instructions. And they typically involve not eating or drinking anything so that you are starved, ready for an anaesthetic. Pack a bag and get yourself to the hospital, usually as quickly as you possibly can. Once that process has happened and once those organs have been accepted and you're on your way into the hospital, at the donor end, we have to get a retrieval team, which is a separate team of surgeons, completely separate to the actual implanting transplant team in many cases. And they will be mobilised in a team to go and retrieve those organs. Those organs, once they are donated from the donor, then get put on ice typically and will then be sent to me at the recipient implanting centre. So that organ will appear on the ward and then will go down to the operating theatre. Now whilst all of that is happening, you've made your way into hospital, we've put you in a bed and then another set of tests starts to make sure that at this point in time you are fit enough to have a kidney transplant today. So is there anything about you today that means that you can't have a transplant? So for example, did you go for a walk last week and get pain in your chest? Do you have an infection, either a urine or a chest infection perhaps? Do you have an ulcer on your foot, which actually looks a little bit dodgy that you've not told anyone about because you were waiting to see whether it was going to get better or not? Do you have any dental infections, sore teeth, anything like that? So 
what happens, the way that I tend to explain it to patients on the day is I'll pop along and see you, introduce myself. And then it's a bit what I call the hurdle race to get your organ at the end. So the first step of that race, the first hurdle to jump is, are you fit enough? So we will do blood tests. If you pass urine, we will do a urine sample. We will typically do an ECG. So we're tracing of your heart. We will take a chest X-ray if you've not had one recently. And again, build up a picture. Is this, and the main question is, is this person fit enough for an operation today? And assuming that there's not really been anything that's changed recently, that you've been to dialysis, that you've taken your medicines and that everything is as it was the last time you saw your kidney doctor or the last time you saw us, there's no reason why you can't have a transplant. Okay. And other little decisions that are made on the day are typically related to do you need dialysis? So when were you last dialyzed? Do you need a quick spin on the machine before you go down to theatre? What's happening with your blood pressure? Do you need to take certain different blood pressure medicines? Or is there anything else that we can do that we're worried about that we can solve quickly to get you your transplant today? So that's hurdle number one. The second hurdle is something called the cross match. So even though on paper this recipient has been matched with this particular donor, I need to know that immunologically, so the immune system of the recipient can have this organ from this donor. And increasingly, this is something we can do on paper based on different lab results that come from the clinical transplantation lab and information that we know about you in advance. But for some patients, we actually need to do a physical test, and that's called a cross-match test. And what that involves is a sample of tissue or blood coming from the donor, and that being run alongside a blood test from the recipient. And what we want to know is, does the recipient's immune system, so does the cells in the blood test, react in any way to the cells from the donor? And that will mimic what will happen when we take the clamps off the vessels and fill the kidney with blood. And the thing that we're trying to avoid is something called hyperacute rejection. And that's something that used to happen a lot more frequently in the early days of transplantation when we didn't know as much as we do now about the immune system. So, for example, if I was to put the wrong blood group kidney in, you would get a reaction straight away. And that whilst that's very a very crude example, that can sometimes happen with other immune cells because of what your body as a recipient has seen previously. What does your what's your immune system primed for? So that test we need to do to make sure that we don't get rejection of that kidney immediately at the time of transplantation, which would mean that we would have to take the kidney out straight away and you would wake up without a transplant. So that's the process that we're really trying to avoid in that. So assuming that that's okay. That's the second hurdle jumped. The third and final hurdle is mainly my job, and that is to have a look at this organ and say, is this organ structurally okay? Is there any damage? Because sometimes the retrieval process does, it's a very difficult operation sometimes, and you can accidentally damage organs, um, obviously by mistake. Is the damage unresolvable or is it fixable? If it's fixable, what's the risks associated with fixing it? Does it put the recipient at any increased risk of certain things happening or certain complications? 
And obviously, if that is the case, then I have to go and have a conversation with the person who this kidney is meant to be going into and say, this is what we found. We think we can transplant this kidney, but there are risks associated with that. And this is what they are. Do you want to take this or not? The other thing that we look at the kidney for is tumours and lumps and bumps that perhaps weren't noticed at the time that the organ was retrieved. And again, is this a lump which looks benign and harmless? Or is this a lump that looks more worrying? Does this look like a cancer? Is this something that I know what it is? Or is this something that I don't know what it is? And again, there are different options around that. But it's important for us to look at that organ before we finally say, yes, we want to transplant it. And if you tick all those three boxes, if you jump those three hurdles, that's the point in time when we can call the porter and get you down into the anaesthetic room and get you a transplant. So as you can imagine, having described all of that process, that involves a huge team of people, both at the donor end, but also at the recipient end. And you'd be amazed how many phone calls, like sometimes when I'm on call, I have to charge my phone twice during the day because it's ringing so regularly. And this is just for one offer. Sometimes we have two, three, four offers happening all at the same time. So you can imagine it's a bit of a logistical nightmare at times to get all of this sort of to line up. But that's one of the joys of the job. And that's what makes it so fun and so interesting. So that's part of the process. So I I can see straight away that... Once you've got the call, even though you've got the call, there are lots of factors there that would mean that the transplant can't go ahead. So a simple thing like if you have a sore throat or a cold, then you wouldn't be able to proceed. Yeah, yeah. Subtle things that you may not even notice. Like, for example, there's one blood test that we take called a CRP, which is um, an inflammatory marker. And it it can be quite nonspecific. And if it's mildly raised, it's meant to be less than five. Say it's 20 or 13, you normally have a CRP of all the tests we've done before, your CRP is less than five. But all of a sudden today, it's 30 or 40. We have to wonder why it's there. Is there a little bit of infection or inflammation somewhere that is causing the problem? And the reason why we act on these things, and sometimes for some people, we would say, actually, we're not going to transplant you is because when we do the transplant, we give you a huge dose of immunosuppressant medication at the time of transplant. Yes, you're on it for life, but at the time of the transplant, that's when you're most vulnerable to infection. And if we're sitting on something where we're not sure where the infection is, there's every possibility that we could kill you, you know, by giving you these drugs and, and, and giving you a transplant. And these are the things that are, it's not obviously never nice to hear, but in the backs of our minds, we don't want to harm you. You know, we're not in this to harm you. We're in this and you've been waiting for this, for the end goal being to prolong your life and to improve your quality of life. And it's very much at the top of our agenda that we minimise the harm that we cause. And we know we're going to harm you by doing an operation. It's going to be painful. We are exposing you to risk. We're exposing you to a big operation. It has to be worth it. All of this has to be worth it. You've not waited all this time for something to go wrong. And we want to minimise the risk of something going wrong. And as much as sometimes doctors can feel, you know, it may be that you think you get frustrated or think, all these tests, all these blood tests, why are they taking blood from me again? Why am I going for this scan? 
it's all with the best of intentions. Um, and that is because we want to help you and do what's best for you. And we want to see you skip out of the hospital with your brand new kidney. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how much joy I get watching someone go home with, in, with their transplant. It, it, honestly, every single time it's, it's a massive smile on my face because I know that this person is going to have you know, a much better life now that they've got a kidney. So anything that deviates from that plan, you know, we need to preempt as much of this as possible so that you get the best result. And that's what we're focusing on is you getting the best result. Wow, that really is amazing. So the person has passed each one of these stages, each one of these hurdles. So what happens next? So what happens next is that you get wheeled down to the operating theatre. You go into the anaesthetic room where the anaesthetist will put you off to sleep. Um, One of the common things that people say to me is, well, you know, am I ever left on my own? And the answer is no. If you were to pop your head around any operating theatre, you'd realise there are lots of people in there. You know, you have an anaesthetist, you often have a second anaesthetist, you have a specialist anaesthetic nurse who's just looking after you being asleep. That's their, their job is to look after you whilst you're asleep. In the anaesthetic room, once you're asleep, you may have other bits and pieces done to you. So you may have extra cannulas or lines put into your hands to help deliver fluids and drugs during the operation and also afterwards. You may have a, a big line put in your neck. Um, and depending on the type of dialysis you have, depending on the type of dialysis access that you have or how you dialyse, the type of line we put in may be slightly different, but essentially it's access into a big blood vessel, which we can get into easily. We can deliver fluids easily. It's also helpful for monitoring as well during the operation. You'll also have a catheter put in. No one particularly likes having a catheter put in, especially men. Uh, And that's (laughs) done when you're asleep uh, to minimise the trauma of having that done. But that's obviously to look at what the urine output is like after the transplant's taken place. And then once all those bits and pieces are done, you get wheeled into the operating theatre where you're put on the operating table. We make sure that you're safely and securely there, that you're not going to fall off, that everything's protected, that your limbs and everything are safe because obviously you can't move and adjust yourself whilst you're under an anaesthetic. We do a final set of checks to make sure that all the things that should have been done have been done. And then we make a start. Um, And depending on uh, where your transplant's going to be, whether it's the right or the left side, the team will arrange themselves around you and the transplant takes place. I know Trevine mentioned that the, the kidneys goes into the abdomen. So we don't take your old kidneys out. Generally, a majority of people keep their own kidneys. And then we we tend to put them in the groin. So if you imagine the front of your tummy, if you imagine a sort of a diagonal cut just over where you're between your pubic bone and your hip bone, it's usually around there. Um, And we know that that gives us reliable access to uh, your blood vessels in your groin. We move all your bowels and your guts out of the way. So they get moved over to the opposite side. And then we free up the blood vessels from all the tissue that sits around those. And when we're ready, we put some clamps on. That stops the blood flow in and out of your leg. It also means that we can work in the area without there being blood in the way. And typically we do a bit of sewing or plumbing. Uh, We join the artery 
of the kidney to the artery of your leg. We join the vein from the kidney onto the vein of your leg. And when we're happy that the sewing looks good, um, we take the clamps off and we fill the kidney with blood. And that process usually takes about half an hour to 45 minutes. Sometimes it's a bit less. Um, if the, the vessels are smaller and there's fewer stitches to put in, it might be quicker. Um, similarly, if you have more than one artery or more than one vein, that might take a little bit longer just because there's more work to do. But usually it's it's under an hour. We like to keep that that time as, as short as possible. Half an hour is ideal, less than half an hour is ideal, but it, it might be a bit longer. And then as soon as we fill the kidney with blood, we like to see the kidney go nice and pink, kind of comes back to life, if you like. And then we just make sure that there's no bleeding and no other problems. And usually we have a little pause and just wait for the kidney to fill up nicely and for us to be happy that we are safe from a from a vascular point of view. Because you can imagine the main concern at the time um, is that we get bleeding. That's the sort of the key moment of the operation is when we fill the kidney with blood again, because some of the sewing may not be quite so perfect. We might have little blood vessels that perhaps we didn't notice when we were looking at the kidney the first time, you know, that we just need to do a little bit of patchwork repairs. And then the last step is joining the ureter, which is the tube that drains the urine from the kidney. We usually put that onto your bladder. We put something called a stent inside the ureter. Typically, not all surgeons do, but a lot of us do. And that's basically just a little plastic tube. And that protects the join between the ureter and the bladder, just so that there's no pressure on that little anastomosis or that little bit of sewing. And that allows the urine to drain into the bladder, through the catheter, into the outside world. And when we're happy with all of that, we make sure everything's nice and dry. And then we sew you back up again. And that process takes anything between two to three hours to longer, depending on how difficult it is. Um, sometimes the size of the patient can have an impact, how deep the blood vessels are, and other challenges that may make the operation a little bit longer. So rewinding slightly. So you said that, and I've heard this before, that you don't take the old kidneys out, you leave them in, the native kidneys you transplant it elsewhere. So why is it not a case of you go to where the old kidneys are, take them out and then attach the new kidney to where the old kidneys were? Well, surgeons are simple creatures. We like to make life easy. So um, some transplants, so like if you had a liver transplant, a lung transplant or a heart transplant, there's no additional space. You've got to take the organs out before you can put the new ones in. You don't have a choice because of where those organs are located. But we know with the kidneys, actually the kidneys live around the back. They're tucked away and they can be quite difficult to take out. And we know that we've got a reliable alternative area that we can utilise. It also means it's a lot easier to access that kidney if we need to look at it for any reason, if we need to biopsy it. If it needs to come out at some point, we know reliably that we've got space. And if we were to take your old kidneys out at the time of the transplant, that would just, again, prolong the length of the operation. And actually having a kidney removed is also quite a big operation. So if we can avoid doing that and cheat and put it in the groin, that's sort of the preferred option, really. Um, cheat. <laughs> <laughs> 
okay. you make life easy for yourself why not <laughs> yeah absolutely definitely um, makes a lot of sense so I mean, I did... reasons for taking them out just before we move on is so if they're painful so if they're causing a problem we'll take them out and that's either before or after a transplant and people who've got polycystic kidneys where the kidneys are very big we may take them out for, to make space because even if they're so big that you don't even have space in the groin. So then we would take them out. If you're somebody who gets recurrent infections, urine infections from your kidneys, then that's another indication to take them out. Because again, what we don't want to do is transplant you with a new kidney and then you get an infection in your old kidney because we've given you all the drugs that we've given you. So that's part of the reason why we interrogate you and ask you so many questions about everything before we get to this point, because in our heads we're thinking is it safe to leave these kidneys in or am I going to have to do something called a nephrectomy or remove the kidney before we even think about having a transplant and for some people that is necessary but for most people it's not. Right so you've transplanted the kidney you've unclamped it so that the blood goes through it and you're looking for it to pick up and go pink mm-hmm. but does it always immediately work or is there times where the kidney isn't doing what you want for it to do? Uh, yeah, so um, regardless of how pink it goes, typically it being beautifully bright pink is a good sign that there's no damage to that kidney, that it's going. It's usually a, a good sign that hopefully it's going to work straight away. Some kidneys are m- more beautiful than others, shall I say. Some don't look as great and that might be for other reasons related to the donor they might be a little bit older they may have been on ice for a bit longer things like that but regardless of how pink it goes you don't always know you can never really always know that it's going to work straight away typically if you have a living donor kidney by far the majority of those will work immediately and that's because we know that living donor kidneys having a living donor operation to take the kidney out and then transplanting that is a far less traumatic experience for that organ than going through the deceased donor sort of transplant or uh, retrieval process we, we know that and that's why living donor kidneys we know last longer and we know that that's the gold standard for anybody who's got kidney failure having a living donor transplant is the best option because you can be as certain as you can be that that kidney is going to work immediately. Um, And that's by far most often the case. With deceased donor kidneys, there is something um, that's more common, and that's called delayed graft function. And the definition of delayed graft function, it varies. But for most people, um, it is the need for dialysis within the first week of having a transplant. So that's another kind of take home message from this is even if you wake up with a new kidney, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're never going to have dialysis again, because a lot of these kidneys do go on strike and they go to sleep. And that's because going through the donation, retrieval, transplantation process can traumatise the organ to a degree. And they sometimes take a little while to work. It's very difficult to predict when they're going to work. But usually we give you dialysis after the operation if you need it. So if we look at you, we look at what the kidney is producing and the kidney is not really passing much urine. If we look at your blood test and know that you're not clearing your creatinine, that your potassium levels are high. 
And if you're also carrying quite a lot of fluid, because we will give you a lot of fluid at the time of the operation, we will say on the ward round, typically the day after or a couple of days after that, actually you probably would benefit from some dialysis because we know that this kidney hasn't quite started working yet. And we just watch and wait. And we typically give you a week. If you get to a week and nothing looks like it's happening, we typically biopsy you. And that's where we take a sample of the new kidney and we put that under a microscope. And the the question that we're looking to answer uh, with that particular test is to say, is this kidney just asleep or actually is there something else going on? So is there early rejection? So sometimes I'm sure lots of people have heard about transplant organs rejecting. And that's when your immune system looks at this kidney and says, hang on, you didn't start off in me, you are foreign material, I'm going to attack you. And sometimes that process can happen quite early, so it can happen within the first week. And the reason why it's helpful to know that is because rejection is very treatable. And what we don't want to do is sit on you and think that this kidney is just sleepy, when actually there's another process going on that we could fix. So that's the sort of the crossroads, is this rejection, is this delayed graft function or a sleepy kidney? If it's rejection, we can treat it. If it's a sleepy kidney, we know we can just sit tight. And if you have delayed graft function, we typically like to see the kidney working before we get you home. But for some people, it does take a bit longer. And it might be that you go home still needing a little bit of dialysis. And we will adjust that decision about dialysis in due course over the weeks that come to say, actually, this kidney is working enough now you to no longer need dialysis. So what is the longest that you've seen that it's taken for a sleepy kidney to wake up, so to speak? Oh, well, it can be weeks. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it can be weeks. For some people, it doesn't work at all. So that's something called primary non-function, where we we say this kidney is never going to work. And the risk of that, we quote, is about 1%. So one in every 100 kidneys has a risk of that to be honest with you I can't remember the last time I saw that but and again it's sometimes it's very difficult to predict but it's one of the things that people need to be aware of that it may happen um, and you will be consented for it and just hope that it doesn't happen to you Um, but it can happen it can happen unfortunately. Is there anything that the patient can do to help prevent that from happening or is it just a case of it happens or it doesn't happen yeah unfortunately there's there's nothing you can do the thing you do have control of to a degree is rejection so taking your medicines your immunosuppressant medicines as they're prescribed is really important because rejection is quite common it happens to about a third of people at some point and you know, people talk about their kidneys lasting 20, 30 years and then them sort of burning out. Usually chronic rejection is is part of that process, but you can do all the right things and that still happen. But we know that if you don't take your medicines as they're prescribed, your chances are higher. So it's not like if you take all your medicines completely religiously at the times that they're prescribed, you're not going to get rejection. Unfortunately, I can't promise you that. But what I can say is you're far less likely to get rejection if you take your medicines as they're prescribed rather than not taking them as prescribed, forgetting to take them, deliberately not taking them, 
my advice is usually after a transplant, we will discharge you on a whole new set of drugs, you know, and, and I often joke with the patients that they rattle when they walk out of hospital because there's so <laughs> many. But part of the, the recovery process after your transplant is actually learning about all these medicines and familiarizing yourself with what side effects you get from them, if any. And I would encourage you to learn about the medicines if you can beforehand, because that's helpful, but also learn with the pharmacists on the ward who are there typically to help you go through all of your medicines and explain exactly what they're all for. And actually, when you come to the clinic after the transplant, when it's your home and you're coming back to see us, have a conversation about your medicines. Are there any that you hate taking because they give you certain side effects? So one particular drug that we give causes diarrhea, for example. People don't like talking about their bowel motions, but you know what? We can't do anything about it unless you tell us. And we would much rather change your medicine and give you a different formulation of that particular medicine so that you take it rather than you not taking it at all. So I'm more than happy, as are all of my colleagues, to sit down with you and say, "Okay, how are these medicines working for you? Are you having any difficulties with them? And be honest and tell us, because if, like I said, if you, if you don't tell us, we can't really do anything about it to help you. And we want to make it as easy a ride for you as we possibly can once you've got off home. So are there any, I know everyone's different and, and you can't answer this specifically, but are there any absolutely you cannot take medicines if you're a transplant patient? Well, I'm going to put my hands up and say I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. I will bow down to the superiority of my pharmacy colleagues who honestly are some of the most knowledgeable people that I work with. Like They have computer brains, honestly. They remember everything. <laughs> and they will be able to tell you the answer to that, to those questions way, way, way better than me. <laughs> But yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are some that we would say absolute yes, absolute no. Um, but I think one of the other things to remember is at the time of transplant, the first few months after a transplant is a very turbulent time. We change a lot and regularly. So um, one of the medicines that a lot of transplant units prescribe, if not all transplant units in the UK prescribe, is something called tacrolimus, which is a type of immunosuppressant medicine. And we look at the levels of that drug to get you in within a range where it's like kind of a bit like it's not too sweet, not too salty. Too much is a bad thing. Too little is a bad thing. Either you're under immunosuppressed or we immunosuppress you so much that actually the kidney suffers or you get lots of side effects because you've got too much of that drug in your system. So we will tinker with the, how much you take. So you might start off taking, say, five milligrams twice a day. It will then go to four milligrams twice a day, then maybe 4.5 twice a day. And then you may need to start another medicine, which we know interferes with tacrolimus. So then you'll go down to two. So that process is an ongoing thing for at least the first few weeks and months after your transplant. So there's a lot of change. And I think it's good to know that it takes a, it's, it takes a little bit of adjustment. You know, you, in a way, you've learned as a chronic kidney failure patient You've learned a whole set of rules about what drugs you take, why you take them, the pattern that you're in, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. You've learned about potentially about dialysis. A lot of people will know about fluid restrictions, what you can and cannot eat, 
all of these rules and, and things we tell you before your transplant, often you have your transplant and then the rules completely change. So for example, the drugs change, but also what we encourage you to eat may change. And actually you're going to have to drink more. That's one of the main challenges for people is they've been used to drinking 500 mils of fluid for the last five years. And now we're saying, right, drink four litres in a day. You know, it's, wow. it's yeah, it's a complete shift of your mindset. And it's hard and it does take a period of adjustment. And yeah, it takes a bit of getting used to. But again, there's method to the madness. We need to feed this kidney and we know that kidneys like fluid. So we need to keep this kidney going. And, you know, it, again, that's a period of adjustment. How much fluid is right for you? You know, your kidney will settle and you will settle into a new rhythm. But that takes time. It's a process. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you're going for your transplant. You go home a week later and everything's brilliant and perfect. It's not that. And, I, and I'm very keen that people have realistic expectations of what a transplant or kidney transplant involves, because it can be a bit of a rocky rose. If you're lucky, you sail through and everything's breezy, fantastic. But for a lot of people, they do have a bit of a turbulent time, even emotionally dealing with the fact that they have to take steroids and steroids can upset your mood and make you cross and upset and so on. You know, it just be kind to yourself and realise you've had a big operation. It's a huge moment in your life. It's something you've been looking forward to for a long time. And it does take a little bit of adjustment to get you back to some sort of new normal. That was one of the things that I was going to say, actually. It's like, I think there might be a kind of romanticised idea of what happens. You know, you, you get the call for the kidney, you have your operation and you leave the hospital and that's it. You walk into the sunset and everything's fine. But it, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of still testing and checking and adjusting. So would it be fair to say that once you've had your transplant, you're going to still have to come back to the hospital a yeah. lot? Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't, you don't get away from us that quickly, unfortunately. I mean, we do keep a close eye on you. And again, the reason for that is not because we can't let go of you and it's because we, we want to keep an eye on you and, and, you know, and be checking up on you and all of these things that sometimes I think some patients do feel a bit like we're being a bit intrusive, maybe. But we know that things are more likely to happen in the first few months after a transplant. So you will come and see us much more frequently after you're immediately discharged from hospital. And most people, that's a couple of times a week. It might be a few more. It might be a few less, depending on your own journey. And that's the other thing to say is that if you talk to one of the transplant patients, it's great if they've had a wonderful time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will. But similarly, just because someone may have had a tough time doesn't necessarily mean that you will. You know, everybody is so different and every transplant is unique. The combination of donor and recipient are always unique. So it's very difficult to predict which path you're going to go down but typically we do see a lot of you and a lot of patients kind of get a bit grumpy and they say well you know you told me that if I had a transplant then you know my life would be better because I don't have to go to dialysis three times a week and here I am in transplant clinic twice a week I'm still having to be picked up by patient transport and I'm still having to have all these blood tests and scans and doctor's appointments and things like that but the reason for that is because we want to make sure that this kidney is working well. We, you know, it's a big change, as I've already mentioned. It's a big period of time where you know, it's important that we 
keep an eye on you to a degree because we've changed so much and we want to make sure that you're okay. Um, and we know that we're looking for things that can go wrong. So infections, rejection are the two big things. Are your wounds healing okay? Do you have any um, new problems that have kind of cropped up since you've been home? Are you eating all right? Are you keeping up with your fluid? What's your blood pressure doing? Because we've changed so many of these things and we've implanted this organ into you, we're still waiting to see how that organ's going to behave. And unfortunately, that does mean that, you know, we keep you quite tightly on, on a lead for a little while. We pester you a lot. We ring you a lot. But as time moves on, as you get to sort of three, six, 12 months, we start seeing you much less frequently. And I think it's at that point that people start to feel better. You know, they feel a bit like they've recovered from the operation. They've got used to a new pattern in terms of medicines. And then we can maybe move your appointments from being every week to every two weeks. Then maybe every three to four weeks and then every couple of months and so on and so forth. And then, you know, most people get into a rhythm where if there's a problem, they know to ring rather than us having to ring you and check up on you. Um, it's kind of the other way around. Um, and most transplant patients are very good at spotting, uh, you know, the ones who are motivated and, and very conscious of their bodies and are very aware of how they feel know when something's not right. And we can reliably get them to give us a call if something's not quite perfect. Um, and we can arrange to see you and, and act on things quickly. Because we know that the sooner we deal with things, or the sooner we can identify and diagnose things, not only is it better for you, but it's better for your kidney because your kidney is going to last longer because the damage that potentially could be happening to that organ is hopefully going to be less because you've left it less time, if you like. So the quicker we know, the quicker we can act um, and, and get the best out of that kidney for you. So you've described a very extensive process from when you've been identified that you need to have a kidney transplant to then getting the call to then going to hospital, all the tests that are involved, and then having the kidney transplant to then following that, all the tests that are required afterwards, and then hopefully getting through the point where your appointments can reduce because you're doing really well. It sounds that overall it can be quite a turbulent process for the patient, for the organ as well. You know, there's a lot that you've described that has happened and that will happen. So how can a kidney patient help themselves to make this process easier? I think there's a lot. Um, I think when I've spoken to patients about this before, it's very, very clear that the whole process of waiting for a transplant has a lot of uncertainty. And I think people who are not kidney patients have had some insight into this, mainly due to the COVID pandemic and not knowing what's happening next, not knowing when we're coming out of lockdown, not knowing when you can go and do all the things that you normally did. And I think that kind of provides some insight into what it's like waiting for an organ, because I think for a lot of patients, they feel that their life is completely on hold until this event happens. And the analogy that I often use when I see patients before their transplant, it's a bit like wanting to play Premier League football. If you imagine that having a transplant is like playing Premier League football, on the waiting list, you're kind of on the subs bench. You're waiting for the event to happen. And just because you're on the subs bench doesn't mean you don't go to training. It doesn't mean you can get away with not practicing 
all the things that you want to be able to be doing at that high level. So if you can keep as fit as you possibly can before your transplant, all of that time, it's an investment. If you can use those few years that you're on the waiting list as a way of getting yourself into the best shape possible so that when you get that call, you are ready. I think that's the only thing you can do. This whole process, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of things that are totally out of your control. And I think even as a surgeon, there's a lot of things that are out of my control in terms of what I can offer you. It's all depending on who happens to be a donor at that point in time, on that day, who else is on the list. There's so many factors, as you know, clearly we've discussed today. There's so much, so many other things going on that really I'm a very small part of the process. And I only have a certain amount of choice in terms of what I can and cannot do. But as a patient, again, you're in a position where a lot of this stuff is out of your control. So if you can focus on the things that you can change, the things that you can do for yourself, and I don't just mean being physically fit exercising. I know how difficult it is. It's difficult enough as a completely fit and healthy person to be motivated to exercise. We know that's hard. Being a kidney patient with symptoms, dialysis, and all the other things that you have to think about, fluid restriction, all this stuff, it's hard. It is hard. But if you can manage it, if you can do some laps of the park, if you can go and play badminton, if you can play football, if you can do the things that you enjoy, then do them. But it's not just about preparing yourself physically. It's also about preparing yourself mentally. What do you know about transplantation? Are there things that you can read? What, you know, how informed do you want to be? Think about the types of organs that you would or wouldn't be willing to accept. Like Trevine mentioned in her podcast about the different types of organ offer. The more informed you are and the more psychologically prepared you are for this process, the better your outcomes will be because your expectations will be met, but also you'll be in the best physical and psychological condition that you can be in to weather all of this potentially stormy process that we've talked about today. And that's something that you do have control of. I'm not saying it's easy. I know it's not easy. But if you can manage to to do some of those things, I think that puts you in a really, really strong position to recover from surgery quickly and to get your life back, which is the whole point of having a transplant in the first place. So don't see this as wasted time. Time on the waiting list doesn't have to be a waste. If you can use it, do and try and make the most of it before you even get a phone call from someone like me. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of this very extensive information. I know that this is going to help so many patients who might be worried, not knowing what to expect, might be a bit scared, but also preparing people for how difficult it will be. I mean, this podcast is about empowerment and it is about being positive, but it's also about giving people a realistic picture of how things could potentially be. Because I think that if you're over positive for want of a better expression, then you're setting people up for failure because then when they hit these bumps in the road, they're not prepared for it. So I think that we've got a really good balance today in terms of showing people it could be this or it could be that. But overall, the transplant process is going to give you a better quality of life. It's going to make so much difference. So 
thank you so much for breaking down this process and explaining everything and for sharing so much amazing information. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.